Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. The lead story today concerns the Delta variation of the coronavirus. How dangerous is it? Many people now think that we've turned the corner on the virus. Many people are not wearing masks anymore, but we have this new variation lurking coming out of India, and it is now one of the dominant strains in the United States. Does it mean that perhaps one day we'll have another lockdown, heaven forbid? And also, of course, dominating the news is the tragedy at Surfside Condominium in Miami Beach, Florida, where a high-rise collapsed. The death toll keeps on rising every day. And the big question is, why? And are other buildings affected by this? Think about it for a moment. After 40 years, we see a tremendous amount of wear and tear, corrosion, and some people think saltwater corrosion from rising tides and maybe even global warming. And the people of San Francisco are beginning to have second thoughts about their Millennium Tower, a gigantic modern uh, high-rise over 50 stories tall that is tilting. 18 inches it has tilted, and could it collapse like what happened in Miami Beach? And then we'll say a few things about the Chinese space program. The Chinese space program took a big hit publicity-wise when not one but two of its booster rockets fell back to Earth and landed not that far from populated areas, though of course no one was killed or injured. And then the question is, are the Chinese actually doing something for science now rather than simply following the And the question that many people are asking is, are the Chinese simply following the West step by step, lockstep by repeating history, or are they doing something new? Well, here's something new. The Chinese have announced that they are going to send the Long March rocket to intercept comets and push them out of the way. In other words, in preparation for one day, a killer asteroid may have our name on it, and be headed toward the planet Earth? And do we have the technology to deflect it and push the asteroid out of the way? And that's what the Chinese hope to do. Because remember, the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why they're not here today. And speaking about the space program, we have the Battle of the Billionaires. Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic, Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin, Elon Musk with SpaceX. Yes, space tourism is definitely on the agenda. And of course, it's not for basic science. The basic science was done decades ago. And it has a lot to do with stroking people's egos, mainly that of billionaires. But, well, we'll talk about the long-term implications and how dangerous is it if people begin to think that going into outer space is like a Sunday picnic. And also controversies about the Big Bang Theory. It turns out there are two ways to calculate the age of the universe, according to the Big Bang Theory. 
The embarrassing thing is the two numbers have not agreed with each other for many a decade, but now a third group has come in saying that they can resolve the Big Bang controversy and calculate more or less precisely the age of the universe. Also, Mars is in the news. For the most part, we see no evidence of life at all on Mars, but some people say, let's look underground. Let's look at the polar ice caps. Well, it turns out that Mars has a lake, an underground lake of liquid water underneath the South Pole. But not only that, the recent evidence seems to indicate that there are dozens, dozens of lakes underneath the crust of Mars, meaning that, well, there could be life on Mars. Who knows? Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today concerns the Delta variation of the coronavirus, which is 60% uh, more prone to mutate and spread than the Alpha version. And the Alpha version, in turn, is more deadly and spreads more widely than the first generation of the coronavirus. So we've had many incarnations of the coronavirus, and the latest one comes out of India, the Delta variation, and it is much more infectious than previous versions. Already, it has dominated the Indian scene, and now it has entered the United States and is now poised to take over as the leading contributor to death and hospitalizations in the United States. Yes, hospitalizations, infections are rising. But the areas where they are rising is interesting. The areas where the Delta virus is taking hold is in areas where we have the least amount of vaccination. So in other words, what we're seeing here is in some sense the effectiveness of vaccination and the fact that in populations where people resist vaccination, that's where the Delta virus is getting a stronghold. Now, there was a report coming out of Israel recently saying that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are only 64% effective against the Delta variation. Well, that report has been challenged. Several reports done in the United States show that it's much higher than that, comparable to the 95% effectiveness that was first shown by the Pfizer vaccine against the earlier versions of the coronavirus. Well, as the weeks go by, more and more data will come in. But the good news is, the data seems to be on the side of optimism. And that is, it seems that the Delta virus is not more lethal, it is more infectious, but it is not appreciably more infectious, so that a booster shot is probably not necessary. Unless, of course, yet another mutation somehow jumps out. Now, we have to realize, first of all, that variations and mutations are inevitable. I mean, that's what life does. Every time a life form reproduces, errors build up. And since the viruses reproduce quite frequently, we have viruses that are mutated much more rapidly than the mutation rate in human beings. So it's something that we're going to have to live with. But so far, and we have to cross our fingers, so far, it turns out that most scientists believe that we do not need a booster shot, and immunity may even last years. Of course, this optimism has to be proven with time, but there is a note of caution here that in the various studies done on the Delta variation, it turns out that the Pfizer 
and the Moderna vaccine seem to be okay. Well, also bad news from Miami Beach, Florida. The world was horrified seeing a high-rise collapse, killing scores of individuals. The death toll keeps rising every day. And we want to know the reason why. Well, the short answer is we don't know. And we won't know for perhaps many months. The earlier suspicion seems to point to the pool area and the garage area that collapsed first. But there has to be a thorough analysis of exactly why this high-rise collapsed. Some people think it was maybe global warming, and that is corrosive salt water from the ocean penetrated into the basement, and this corrosive salt water was not adequately drained because of a design defect in that building. But time will tell. But the implications of this are enormous. Think of all the people that bought a high-rise condo right next to beachfront property. They have to worry. They have to worry about their insurance policy. They have to worry about engineers' reports. They have to worry about the fact that periodic inspections may reveal hidden dangers like what we saw in Miami Beach. First of all, we even have examples in San Francisco where we have the gigantic supermodern Millennium Tower right there in the financial district of San Francisco. And usually when you build a high-rise of that height, you anchor it to bedrock. Why? Because bedrock in turn is connected to the crust of the earth itself. So you're literally connecting to hundreds of miles of, of solid rock when you drill and anchor your high-rise in the bedrock. In Manhattan, for example, for those of you who have visited Manhattan, you know that high-rises are only in the downtown area and the midtown area, but very little in between. And why is that? That U-shape is caused by the volcanic flows of magma millions and millions of years ago when the foundation for Manhattan was first laid. So the high-rises that you see in Manhattan are high-rises that are anchored right into the bedrock, which in turn forms a U-shape, which in turn is the reason why we have a midtown and a downtown area full of skyscrapers, but very little in between. Well, the Millennium Tower in San Francisco apparently was not built into the bedrock. As a consequence, engineers have looked at it, and, well, it's tilting. 18 inches is tilting. It's tilting so bad that if you take a marble and place it on the floor of this super modern Millennium Tower, the marble will roll all by itself. Well, the good news is that engineers are now trying to brace it so that it is anchored more to the bedrock of the planet Earth. But the question is, how many more time bombs are there out there? A lot of people bought beachfront property, and perhaps if this global warming theory pans out, it means that they would have to have yet another engineering report to make sure that salt water does not corrode their foundation, leading to a catastrophic collapse. Also, speaking about catastrophes, in the movies, you know that an asteroid can come barreling out from outer space, and we have to blow it up with atomic bombs, like in Armageddon. Well, that's actually not the way scientists view the question. Yes, asteroids are out there, 
asteroids bigger than, let's say, a football field, number in the tens of thousands, most of them will not impact on the planet Earth. But of course, we do track these things. The danger is twofold. Some asteroids are smaller than a football field and can evade radar. Also, in a worst-case scenario, you could have a comet following an irregular orbit, a non-periodic irregular orbit, whipping around the sun. As it whips around the sun, you cannot detect its presence. But then as it goes past the sun, then it sprouts a tail, and then you can see the comet coming at you. And how much warning do you have? About two weeks. Sorry about that. Well, that's a worst-case scenario. Nobody thinks that's going to happen anytime soon. But scientists are studying this question, and the Chinese are even proposing a solution to the problem. They say now that perhaps with 20 launches of their Long March missile, they might be able to intercept and deflect an asteroid in its orbit. No one's ever done that before. We've sent missions to asteroids in order to get samples of them, but no one's ever tried to actually change the trajectory of the asteroid itself. Now, the Chinese were criticized for sending rockets that simply duplicate what was done decades ago by the old Soviet Union and the United States. In other words, the Chinese space program is very cautious. It's accelerated, but it's very cautious following step by step the steps taken by the West decades ago. Well, this new initiative is quite novel because it means that the Chinese are taking the threat of an asteroid impact very seriously. And there are three kinds of impacts that we have to worry about. The first is the city buster, an object the size of an apartment building that hits the Earth every 100 or 200 years. Two of them. Two of them hit Russia just in the last century, in Tunguska, in Siberia, and also in Chelyabinsk. That's the city buster capable of taking out, let's say, New York City. Then we have the nation buster an object that could take out Germany or England. The city buster comes every 100, 200 years. We had two of them in the last 100 years. Nation busters are much more infrequent, once every few thousand years. And then we have the planet buster, an object perhaps six miles across that is capable of taking out not just Germany, but life as we know it on the planet Earth. They occur perhaps once every 50 million years. And so far, when we track these asteroids, we see nothing within the next 100 years that poses a direct threat. The only threat comes from comets in irregular orbits that cannot be looked at by a computer. And so they could catch us by surprise. But we do know that there are some asteroids that if they're nudged slightly, by an, a contact with a neighboring piece of rock, they could actually hit the Earth. We have Apophis, for example, the size of the Rose Bowl in Los Angeles, and it's going to zip by the Earth actually in the next few years. It'll probably miss, but we're not totally sure. If there's some kind of anomaly in the orbit of Apophis, it could actually hit the Earth. So I think it's a good thing that the Chinese are now looking at the question of saving the planet in case there's an asteroid with our name on it coming our way. 
And speaking about a space, we have the battle of the billionaires. Billionaires are not just content to create a rocket program of their own. No, they want to go up there and be a pioneer, an astronaut, just like the astronauts they saw when they were children. On one hand, we have Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic. Then we have Jeff Bezos of Blue Origin and Elon Musk of SpaceX, not to mention the Russians and perhaps even the Europeans. All of them are looking at space tourism, not just for scientific reasons, but, well, let's face it, to get cash flow. It turns out that the Richard Branson rocket actually piggybacks piggybacks on a jet, takes it up into the atmosphere, and then it fires its rockets, going about 70 miles up uh, over the surface of the Earth. Jeff Bezos has his uh, Blue Origin rocket. That rocket takes off vertically, no, no piggybacking off a jet airplane, and it rises also about 70 miles to the very edge of space, and then, without a pilot at all, it lands itself. And then with Elon Musk and SpaceX, he has even bigger visions. He's selling tickets to the moon. That's right. There's a Japanese billionaire who has already bought out every single seat in Elon Musk's moon rocket. The moon rocket will not actually land on the moon. It'll circle around the moon. But it does mean that, well, we're perhaps entering a new era in the space race. In other words, space tourism is basically following the path of the railroad and the airplane. The railroad and the airplane, of course, first started off mainly shipping freight and then shipping select passengers, the rich, the wealthy, and finally, the average person. So some people think that this is just the path taken by transportation technology. However, let's be honest about this, there are dangers involved. Going into space is not a Sunday picnic. For example, what is the accident rate for catastrophic failure of a rocket? It turns out that the space shuttle had approximately 200 launches and we had two fatal accidents, killing 14 brave astronauts. That is a 1% failure rate. This means that whenever you enter a rocket, there's a 1% chance that you're not going to come back. Now, we are over 50 years into the space age, and we have not yet been able to get that number down below 1%. So in other words, every time you enter that space capsule, Keep in mind that space tourism is not a Sunday picnic. Space tourism is not like going into a commercial jetliner or an abstract train. No, we're talking about the fact that you are taking a risk. And speaking about astronomy, there's a controversy brewing concerning how old the universe is. If you read any science textbook, they now say that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Well, how do they know that number? No one was there 13.8 billion years ago to measure that. And is that really true? Well, the embarrassing thing is there are actually two numbers describing the age of the universe, and they don't quite agree with each other. 
One method to calculate the age of the universe is to look for radiation from the Big Bang itself. This is the cosmic microwave background radiation, and by analyzing it and fitting it with the theory, you can calculate the age of the universe to be 13.8 billion years. However, there's another way without looking at the Big Bang itself, but looking at the expansion of nearby stars. Cepheid variables are variables that are easily calibrated, and when they flicker, we know pretty much how far they are away, and we know quite a lot about them because we study them. So using Cepheid variables that are nearby stars, you can calculate the age of the universe that way. How do you do it? First, you calculate the expansion rate of the universe, and then you just run the videotape backwards and calculate since when did this expansion take place. This is nothing but first-year mathematics. So when you do the calculation, ironically enough, you get two different numbers. They're off, but not by much, but hey, in science, a miss is as good as a mile. And so it's kind of embarrassing that we have not one, but two ages for the universe. Well, now we have yet a third group coming in. What they did was they discarded the two previous methods of calculating the age of the universe and came up with a third by looking at red giant stars. Red giant stars are gigantic stars made out of mainly helium gas. In fact, our sun will eventually become a giant red giant star and basically eat up the Earth. So by looking at the characteristics of red giants, they came up with a third number. And the third number seems to agree closely with the age of the universe at 13.8 billion years. And so we now have evidence, not from one study, but two studies, which in turn are a collection of many smaller studies indicating what the age of the universe is. And so some people are saying that perhaps finally we can put to rest this rather embarrassment, this rather glaring hole in our understanding of the universe by calculating the age of the universe and having the numbers begin to agree with each other. And speaking about outer space, Mars is in the news once again. As you probably realize, not one, not two, but three probes reached Mars recently, one from the United Arab Emirates, one from China, and the third from the United States. Three probes successfully reached Mars. The UAE probe simply circled around Mars, and the other two actually planted rovers on the surface of Mars. Well, here's something new. Several years ago, by looking at radar charts of Mars, by bouncing radar off the surface of Mars, you can get a, a sneak preview of what's underneath the surface of Mars. And when they do that, they were astonished to find a lake, a lake of liquid water, an underground lake under the south polar region of Mars. This was big news a few years ago because that lake is 12 miles across and who knows, maybe harbors microbial life of some sort. You see, once upon a time, Mars had great oceans. We see gigantic riverbeds and the remnants of ancient lakes, even the outline of an ocean on Mars, but they all evaporated away about three billion years ago. The atmosphere of Mars is very thin. The solar wind is very strong, 
And the solar wind essentially blew the remaining atmosphere of Mars into space. And as Mars began to lose its atmosphere, the boiling point of water drops. And so the oceans of Mars began to boil all by themselves because of the low pressure of atmospheric pressure on Mars. And so where did the water of Mars go? Well, a lot of it went into outer space, blown into outer space by the solar wind. Some of it landed on the polar ice caps as snow, and that's where we have the largest concentration of ice on Mars right now. And third, some of it went underground. Now, with our probes, where have we gone? We're timid. We only go with our rovers where things are very boring and uninteresting because you don't want the rover to crash. Therefore, the rover has never been to the polar ice caps. They've never been able to look underground. They've never begun to analyze rough terrain. They only go where the most boring features of Mars are located. Well, what this satellite did was it peered underneath the surface of Mars once again, and this time they found not one, not two, but dozens. The presence of dozens of underground lakes near the South Polar region. Now, what does that mean? Well, maybe nothing. Maybe Mars is still a dead planet, but it also means that perhaps, just perhaps, life got off the ground three billion years ago, about the same time that life got off the ground on the planet Earth, and microbial life has been preserved in these underground lakes. For example, if you visit some lakes in the United States, lakes that were left over from the Ice Age and were left behind as the ice receded, and then you analyze, for example, the fish inside the lakes, sometimes you'll find fish that are blind. They have no need for ice because they're in a lake that is totally covered, no light at all. There's no need for eyes. And so these fish are blind because there's no necessity to have eyes. So just like the fish have been able to survive for thousands of years after the end of the Ice Age, perhaps, perhaps microbial life left over from billions of years exists in these underground lakes. Well, this is something that has to be checked out very carefully. The result, of course, has to be verified by other groups. But if it holds out, if it turns out that Mars has dozens of underground lakes of liquid water, that is extremely important. Why? Because water is the universal solvent. It is the solvent that can dissolve most substances. Not all, of course. But many substances dissolve in water, including organic substances. Substances made out of oxygen and hydrogen and carbon. Molecules which in turn can create proteins. And why is that important? Because out of protein molecules, you can begin to construct cells. And who knows, maybe you might even be able to put together a self-replicating autocatalytic molecule called DNA. I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. And speaking about the Surfside accident, you begin to realize that accidents can happen anywhere, anytime, in unexpected ways. 
And in the second half of exploration, we'll talk about what happens when these accidents happen with our nuclear weapons. These are called broken arrow incidences. So stay tuned. bring on James Oskin and Michael Magellet, two Air Force officials who were actually in charge of these nuclear weapons, talking about firsthand what it's like to be part of a nuclear accident. And now I'd like to bring on our two guests for today. They've written a rather astonishing new book, perhaps the first of its kind. Broken Arrow is the title of the book. Broken Arrow, the Declassified History of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Accidents. You have to do freedom of information. You have to get access to top-secret documents in order to look carefully at the history of nuclear weapons accidents. When nuclear bombs were dropped on people's backyards, nuclear bombs were dropped on tourist towns, nuclear bombs were dropped in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. Well, the full history with pictures is included in this remarkable new book. And we have two special guests, the authors, Michael Magillette and James Oskins. We should point out that these are two retired military officials. They've had a long history with nuclear weapons. And while in the military, they had direct contact with nuclear weapons and heard about these broken arrows. So they decided to embark upon a journey to write perhaps the definitive story of what is known about nuclear weapons accidents. Also, we'll be using a certain amount of jargon, so let me explain. First of all, a nuclear weapon is set off with high explosive, conventional high explosives. So many times when the nuclear weapons were dropped on people's backyards or on a tourist town, the explosive went off, but not the nuclear material. The nuclear material itself is either uranium or plutonium, and it's containing what is called the capsule. For a hydrogen bomb, which is a thousand times more powerful than a uranium bomb or a plutonium bomb, there's an additional ingredient in the form of tritium gas. And so when you hear the words uranium, plutonium, tritium, you're talking about the active ingredients of atomic and also hydrogen bombs. But in these broken arrows, we have the conventional material exploding, but fortunately not the nuclear material. Also, these weapons have names associated with them. The Nagasaki bomb was mass-produced and became the Mark III. So during this interview, we'll be using the word Mark. Mark V, for example, was one of our early mass-produced atomic bombs. The Mark 17 is a hydrogen bomb, and so on and so forth, as we refer to these nuclear bombs. So once again, our two special guests will be talking about their new book, Broken Arrow, the Declassified History of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Accidents. The first question for you, Mike, is how did you get interested in the whole concept of nuclear weapons accidents? 
Well, I was a nuclear weapons specialist in the Air Force from 1980 to 1995, and I retired in 95. And uh, during most of my time in service, I had a big interest in uh, the history of our career field. And after I got out, I decided I was going to create a web page and research some of the history. And in the process, uh, I learned, of course, you know, a lot of this stuff wasn't public, and we had to do a lot of digging. And in the course of my research, we discovered that there were three Air Force specialty codes in the nuclear weapons career field. There was mechanical, mechanical assembly, there was uh, electronics, and there was uh, nuclear components. And Jim happened to be a, a person who worked on the uh, nuclear components, and he knew a chief master sergeant that I knew overseas. So from that point on, uh, we're doing research for our, our website. We decided, well, why don't we write a book about broken arrows? Because we knew there, there's a lot of information coming into the public domain. And uh, from that point on, uh, we spent we spent several years gathering information, requesting information. And the end result, of course, is our book, Broken Arrow, the Declassified History of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Accidents. Okay. And, uh, Jim, precisely how did you obtain this information? Uh, through a lot of correspondence with different government agencies, uh, the information is not held by a single agency, unfortunately. We've contacted the um, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, the National Nuclear Security Administration, Department of Energy, Air Force Safety Command, Air Force Historical Research Agency, the National Archives, Department of Energy Nevada, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Army, uh, a lot of correspondence and a lot of patience. Okay, now let's get right into the whole concept of Broken Arrow. Some of these incidences have, in fact, gone into the public domain, but in a very sketchy way, you guys have compiled the largest and most complete set of information concerning these incidences. However, when I spoke in South Carolina once, uh, people gave me some news clippings, news clippings of what happens in 1958. It was Mars Bluff, Florence, South Carolina. A uh, B-47 bomber dropped an atomic bomb on the Gregg family. Uh, the Gregg family heard this explosion. They went outside. The woodshed was blown apart. And later, the military came in and paid them off, paid them off to keep their mouths shut about that incident and, of course, to pay for some of the damage. And they also came in to bulldoze some of the soil. However, you got the goods. I just have some newspaper clippings. What actually happened in 1958 in Florence, South Carolina? Mike. Uh, There was a B-47 aircraft that was flying at... uh approximately 35 to 40,000 feet. And uh, <laughs> what apparently happened is one of the crew members, the, the aircraft was either carrying a Mark VI bomb or we believe a, um, oh, possibly a uh, Mark 36 bomb. And how does that compare with the Hiroshima bomb, by the way? It was The Mark VI basically was an improved Fat Man bomb. Uh, like the Nagasaki bomb? Uh, yes, a large implosion weapon, uh, basically an improved version of the, the Fat Man and the Mark IV. Uh, or it could have been a Mark 36 uh, early thermonuclear weapon, which required, of course, a, a capsule of nuclear weapons material. And during that time frame, of course, they kept the capsule separate in the crew compartment. Uh, we know that the uh, there was an inadvertent release, as they put it in the documentation. And the 
weapon dropped and uh, impacted with the ground. And when, when, of course, that happens, you have about 5,000 pounds of high explosives. Now, it was the conventional explosive that detonated, right? We should make that clear. There's yes. been no accidental nuclear detonation ever, but Correct. this was the conventional explosive that detonated. Right. The, the early uh, fission weapons and the early thermonuclear bombs had what was called a capsule, and this was kept separate until immediately before strike or uh, you know, the, either a crew member had to go in and manually insert the nuclear material, in the case of the Mark VI, or in the case of, say, uh, later early thermonuclear types, it was already installed, but there was an uh, electromechanical mechanism, a screwjack mechanism, to put it in that the uh, bomb commander could, you know, just flick a switch. And, of course, uh, now you mentioned, of course, the, uh, the apparent lack of radiation. That, that's, it is pretty interesting because uh, those early bombs do contain a, uh, a quantity of uh, uh, natural uranium in the tamper. So, yeah, there, there probably was some radioactive, uh, real slight radioactive contamination, but the problem, I think, is it was in a swampy area. And in the case of, you mentioned Thule, uh, when, when you have, like, water and, you know, residual contaminants around that the survey instruments don't pick this material up. Okay, and Jim, uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, cleanup operation. Uh, what what happens when you drop an atomic bomb on someone's backyard and you have to go in and clean up the mess? Exactly what happens? Well, it depends on the weapon. Um, in that case, um, as Mike mentioned, there there probably would be some residual uh, radioactivity from the tamper, but the tamper was composed of what we now call depleted uranium, which actually is a is a very low level uh, radioactive element. In my career, actually, I worked on a lot of that. It's not very hazardous unless you ingest it. Uh, as far as cleanup goes. Um, there's not much to it. Uh, the high explosive was more or less fragmented that. Um, just leaving leaving it on the surface, basically, to be scooped up. Now, it was mentioned that the bomb might have been an improved Nagasaki bomb. Uh, the Nagasaki bomb was a plutonium bomb. Uh, plutonium is the most toxic chemical known to science. So is it conceivable that plutonium rather than uranium was released in that incident in 1958 in South mm -hmm. Carolina? No. And the how's that? Plutonium would have been contained in the capsule. Mm -hmm. And the capsule was not inserted. The capsule was not on board the aircraft at the time. Aha. Uh -huh. So it was not fully loaded then when the bomb was dropped? No, it was not. So there was no danger of a real detonation taking place, but it was no. a broken arrow. No, there was not. I see. Okay. Now let's move on. Uh, you'd think that the military would have learned its lesson, dropping atomic bombs on people's backyards. Let's now talk about Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, where several hydrogen bombs apparently were dropped, according to the press reports. According to the press reports, uh, every hydrogen bomb has safeties on them, four or five safeties, and all but one of the safeties on one of the hydrogen bombs was set off when its parachute was snagged on a tree, causing a jolt, and the jolt acts almost accidentally set off that hydrogen bomb, according to press reports. Uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara indirectly referred to that incident, 
stating in, in public that there was one incident where we came very close to an accidental detonation of a nuclear weapon on the United States. Now, these are, of course, published reports. Tell us now what actually happened. Mike? Well, the, uh, the aircraft was flying an airborne alert mission. It was a B-52, and uh, uh, I believe that one was a, a breakup in midair. And what happened was the aircraft, the, the weapons, the Mark 39 weapons inside the aircraft were uh, locked in the U-2 uh, locking me- mechanism. The, the, basically, it was like a bicycle chain that wrapped around the weapon and held the weapon in the bomb bay. It was a rather primitive system, but I guess it worked under the circumstances. Uh, the aircraft broke up in flight, and in the process of it, you know, catching fire and breaking up and spinning out of control, the uh, the weapons were torn free from the bomb bay. And in the process, of course, uh, the, say the bomb rack separated from the shackle and the weapon, and of course it, it pulled the arming rod. Now, there's no electrical power applied to the weapon, but uh, in the early days, in the early weapons, once you pulled, say, an arming rod, it activated a low-voltage thermal battery. And that started the chain of events. Uh, some of the, one of the weapons, of course, uh, was uh, fell with a parachute, which is, I guess, pretty fortunate because it was recovered intact. And that's the weapon that, play, uh, that uh, of course, they recovered with the parachute in the famous picture. Well, when we last left off, we were talking about the incident in Goldsboro, North Carolina, an incident where we came closest to a possible detonation. Of course, no detonation did take place, but there were two hydrogen bombs that were dropped when a KC-135 refueling tanker collided with a military weapon dropping these bombs. One bomb was snagged by a parachute. The other bomb hit the ground. And the question is, how close did we actually get to a possible detonation of a live hydrogen bomb in this Broken Arrow accident? Well, where we last left off, we were talking about the weapon that was snagged by a tree. But what about the weapon that hit the ground? The other weapon fell free, free fall. And uh, there's a number of the uh, mechanisms that, of course, were activated. Of course, as we mentioned, the arming wires were pulled, uh, a pulse generator was act- activated. Uh, there's a number of other components, uh, explosive actuators. There were timers, uh, safety timers that have to run before other uh, components are armed or activated. Uh, for example, there's barrel switches, there's inertial switches, uh, high-voltage thermal battery. And the final steps, of course, to detonate a weapon is, of course, you have to, the, uh, what we would call the X unit or the fire set has to be armed. And, of course, there's other components that are required to uh, fire a nuclear weapon. For example, there's what's called a tritium reservoir. It contains a tritium deuterium gas, which is injected into the hollow pit of the weapon before it actually detonates. So there were still a number of steps that had to, the weapon had to go through before it was, uh, you know, could detonate in the nuclear sense. Uh, we mentioned the, the freefall weapon. That weapon fell to earth, and it actually penetrated into the ground. It was basically, of course, destroyed a telescope within itself, and the, the secondary actually separated. In that case, the secondary, they estimate, probably went down about another 75 feet or so. They excavated the area uh, during the excavation. They actually recovered some of these components, and in the course of doing so, they recovered the arming switch. And 
it was destroyed uh, when it hit the earth, but they thought at first that the arming switch had armed. Now, of course, that would be a, a great matter of concern. And Jim and I have gone through the, the uh, reports, and we determined that there's actually another arming switch that had to be activated before final arming and firing. That was called the trajectory arming switch. And they actually, uh, in documentation, they actually noted that there was probably a need for a trajectory arming switch for nuclear safety. Okay. But, uh, you, you did mention that the, you know, there was a lot of concern, and it, it was a serious incident. That's, that's <laughs> that can't be denied. I mean, it was a wake-up call as far as nuclear safety went. Okay, that, so uh, Jim now. Could you yes. summarize for us, uh, safeties, uh, how many safeties, like a safety on a gun, how many safeties are there on a hydrogen bomb that you have to activate in order to, for the thing to detonate? And in this incident, exactly how close did we come to setting off all these safeties? It depends, actually, on the weapon and, and when it was manufactured, the age and the, the development of the technology. Probably on that Mark 39, I believe there were seven safeties, mm-hmm. um, two of which did not arm. So there actually was little possibility that it would have detonated nuclearly. So, in other words, there were about seven safeties. Five of them were set off, but two of them held and that prevented any possibility of an accidental detonation. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it functioned as designed. Uh-huh. And what did the military learn after that? This is probably the closest we've ever come, right, to an actual detonation? Um, that we know of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's move on to 1966. Uh, this time we're going to go to Spain, uh, in an incident that was widely reported in the European press, uh, this time four hydrogen bombs uh, fell out of the bomb bay when there was a KC-135 refueling tanker that collided with the military weapon. Four hydrogen bombs <clears throat> fell out, three landed on this tourist town, and one landed in the Mediterranean. And it caused mass panic, mass evacuation, widespread coverage in the European press because there was a live hydrogen warhead sitting in the Mediterranean. And according to press reports, uh, the military then sent the Alvin submarine, which is very famous because the Alvin submarine also went down to the Titanic and took those uh, incredible pictures of the Titanic. The Alvin submarine reached out, located the fourth hydrogen bomb, reached out with its grappling uh, hooks, grabbed the weapon, and missed As a consequence, the bomb tumbled further into the Mediterranean, causing even more panic in this tourist town. Meanwhile, the military came in with trucks and began to cart off all the radioactive materials. Uh, One bomb had completely broken open and released its plutonium. Now, these are the press reports. Tell us now what actually happened. Uh, Mike. (laughs) Well, uh, I guess the the press is pretty much... uh spot on when they're, when they're discussing, you know, the incident in general. But, uh, of course, we have uh, the classified documentation that discusses basically the what happened to every single individual weapon. Uh, 
for example, uh, you mentioned that, the, of course, the one weapon that fell into the, uh, the Mediterranean, and of course, that was recovered after, I think, uh, two months or more. Uh, that's interesting, because I read a post-mortem report on that, and even at that depth, the, uh, the seawater did manage to penetrate all into the weapon components and, and soak the high explosives and everything, so basically the, the weapon you know, couldn't have detonated. It was basically inerted in, in a, you know, an explosive sense. Um, the other weapons, of course, two weapons did land on the Spanish soil, and there was some uh, plutonium contamin contamination, and it was, of course, a very serious uh, accident. Uh, we have we have reports of that uh, that we're going to put in our next book. Basically, of course, we're going to expand on a lot of the accidents and introduce some new accidents. But uh, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff. I guess we can we can discuss on Palomares. In fact, uh, one of my friends up in Montana was actually involved in that uh, accident. He was flying. A, he was the pilot of a KC-135, and he got a message to switch lead aircraft during the refueling. So that's rather strange incident there. And um, Jim, could you elaborate on the cleanup operation? According to press reports, of course, widely covered in the European press. In fact, there's even a book, a book about the Palomares incident. Uh, many trucks had to come in to hard ho cart off large quantities of radioactive soil. Uh, any comments? Yes, that's true. There was a lot of, um, since two weapons detonated on impact of the soil, um, the high explosive in them detonated. Those weapons did contain a measure of plutonium, which, of course, um, is more hazardous than depleted uranium. And that's basically what they were cleaning up. Um, I believe there were some tomato patches that were involved, a lot of people. Um, basically, the material was, topsoil was scooped off, put into containers, and sent back to the States and buried. And as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that fourth hydrogen bomb that fell into the Mediterranean that was reclaimed by the Alban submarine is on display. In fact, I visited it. It's in the Albuquerque Atomic Museum. And as I understand, um, it has a dent in the front part of the bomb when the bomb impacted. And I believe it's on the cover of your book. Is that true? Yes, yes it is. The dent actually is in the it's in in the in the material. It's a honeycomb material that's designed to absorb impact. And there's no no bomb components actually involved in that area of the weapon. Mm -hmm. That was simply honeycomb material that collapsed. Okay, now let's move on. Uh, we talked about South Carolina, North Carolina, Palomares, and now let's talk about. Greenland, just two years after the famous Palomares incident, um, this time we dropped uh, atomic bombs on the ice in Thule, Greenland, and had to send in huskies and other kinds of elaborate equipment to reclaim radioactive ice. Well, that's according to the press reports. Tell us now, Mike, what really happened in 1968 in Greenland. Well, we had a B-52 uh, from Plattsburgh Air Force Base, which I used to be stationed at, but of course not during that time frame. Uh, it was flying an airborne alert mission, and uh, they had a fire in the cockpit, and they couldn't uh, put the fire out. And they decided to head for Thule and hopefully make an emergency landing. 
well, uh, the situation uh, degraded very quickly, and smoke was in the cockpit. The crew uh, flew over the base. Actually, they actually flew over the base and uh, <laughs> ejected, and the aircraft kept flying for a little bit, and it started a turn. And approximately seven miles from the base on the sea ice, the aircraft impacted. And we found some uh, documents that indicate that the aircraft probably hit the sea ice at going over 600 knots, which I believe is pro- approximately about 660 miles an hour. Um, and in that case, in, in the weapons it was carrying, it was carrying four thermonuclear weapons, in a, what we call a clip-in. And at that speed, it, there's I don't believe there's no chance at all that any weapon could survive an impact with a high explosive. Now, we do know from reading the, the documentation that I'd say with 100% uh, reliability, all four weapons were destroyed. We know that from reading the documentation that they recovered four tritium reservoirs almost two miles from the point of impact. And like I mentioned before, you had that aircraft come in at that speed, bam, hit the sea ice at the, I don't, I don't know exactly how the down angle it was, but we know it was coming down pretty quick and at a steep angle. And we all know the the force and physics involved when you hit something, you know, like you throw a football or a basketball on the ground, it's going to ricochet off, and that's exactly what those uh, bomb components did. Now, they, there was some concern, of course, about maybe a, a weapon that maybe sunk through the ice or weapons. They uh, actually released that in some press releases. And, uh, of course, given their experience uh, in Spain, I don't think that would have presented a problem recovering any weapons that were under the sea ice at the time because the, the depth of... Uh, Volstenholm Bay was approximately 800 feet. But we do know, of course, uh, we've actually reviewed all the message traffic that they declassified several years ago. It's about 300 pages, and they list all the components. And We've actually got to have a chart in our new book that's going to list all the weapon components. It, you know, it's all unclassified. So we can, we can say with, uh, you know, 100% surety that all four bombs were, in fact, destroyed. So there's no missing nuclear weapon in Thule. Okay, Jim, any more comments about this uh, mess in Thule, Greenland? I'm sure the Greenland government wasn't too happy about the fact that they had all this radioactive ice. Uh, but any comments? Um, yeah, the, the key comment is, I think, the fact that even though the, the four weapons sustained a huge impact, they did not detonate nuclearly. Uh, there was no nuclear detonation. Um, they were actually in a safe condition when the aircraft crashed. And they just, the radioactivity was spread based on the detonation of the explosive in the in the weapon. And it did take quite a while to clean it up. I mean, they were working in conditions of minus 50 degrees in the dark. Um uh, the Danes were concerned, but I don't think they were panicked about it. I don't remember reading anything to that effect. They were involved in the cleanup. I think the area is still being monitored. Um, basically, there was little risk, I believe, after the cleanup. Okay, now, I was watching TV um, all last year. And there was a special about an atomic bomb that was lost off the coast of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew about that incident, uh, but I didn't realize that it was actually part of the local lore. Local fishermen, local sea divers have been intrigued 
Uh, the exact coordinates of the bomb that was dropped off the coast of Georgia landed in the Atlantic Ocean are, in fact, published. I have them somewhere myself. And in principle, if you had a little submarine, I imagine you can go down and dredge this murky water to actually take an atomic bomb out of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, well, according to the TV special, uh, there were some people who thought about that, but the water is kind of murky. And the precise location, well, maybe it drifted over the years. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. So if you want to find out more about these nuclear accidents, that is, what happened when we dropped the atomic bomb on South Carolina, North Carolina, Spain, Greenland, then get a copy of their latest book by James Oskin and Michael Magellet. The book is called Broken Arrows. And if you want to find out more about my show, Exploration, then go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. We have four and a half million fans on Facebook. And my latest book, The God Equation, is a New York Times bestseller. And it concerns the search for the ultimate unified field theory, the theory of everything. So once again, stay tuned every week when on exploration we discover the world of science. <laughs>